everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I want to thank you for tuning in to part two of our two-part series, The Loss of Our Biblical Worldview. Today, we're going to talk about how ancient Greek influence impacted the church. And full disclosure, this was not easy to prepare. Going into history, no matter what the topic, it can be challenging to communicate it in a simplistic way without getting too in the weeds, right? I like learning about all this stuff, uh, which is why I spend time on it, but I don't want to assume everyone else out there is the same way as me. And I know that we live in a time crunch world where most people, you know, we want things like this, right? And I wish I could say today's episode will be like that, but it won't. So you just might want to get a little cozy here. There's a lot to cover, so this might be a little bit long. I'll try to watch my time. But in order to grasp even just basic things that took place in Greek culture to create such tremendous influence everywhere in all areas of life, we have to peel the onion back a bit. So to do that, I want to start off by talking about the seven churches of Revelation just for a minute. We've been teaching on those, and we not only work through the letter, but we dig into the history of the city and the region and the condition of society and of the pressures that each church faced in light of where they lived so that we can get a full scope of what was potentially going on there. Well, out of the seven churches, there are two in particular that Jesus gives no criticism to. He only commends them. And he doesn't commend them for the things maybe we think a church would be commended for. He doesn't commend them for things like wealth or even social connections, nor even how large or alive that church appears to be. He doesn't commend them for their order of service or even how they dress when they come or even their prophets or apostles. Rather, he commends these two churches for something very important to him faithfulness. And the words faith and faithfulness are the same words in the Hebrew and Greek, so they're interchangeable. You don't just need to have faith in the beginning when we believe in Jesus, right? But we need to stay faithful along the way to the very end, even if it's hard. It's not how we start our race, but it's how we're going to finish it. That's important. Well, things were hard for these churches. Not only were they under the rule and governance of the Roman Empire and commanded to call Caesar Lord when Jesus is their Lord, they were up against things like idolatry, powerful trade guilds, sexual immorality, a synagogue of Satan, persecution, martyrdom, to name just a few of the pressures. But something else was coming against the early house churches in those days. And not just those seven, but all house churches in the Roman Empire. They were up against false doctrines. Doctrines of demons, as Paul puts it. And these doctrines were finding their way into the infant church. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. 
That's what was happening then, and it is still happening now. Deceiving spirits came into the churches, as did these doctrines of demons. And one of those doctrines in particular that appears to have done the most damage was what was called Gnosticism. And don't get hung up on any of these big words. Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. And it means to know. It brought in the thought that there is more to know. There's deeper things. And what it did is it mixed pagan ideas, Greek philosophy, mysticism, and human reasoning with twisted explanations of scripture, bringing heretical new ideas into the early church. And not only that, it took root, so much so that by the third century, it was fully absorbed. You're talking within the first 250 years from the start of the church. It didn't take long for heretical doctrines to come in the moment a church was planted. Well, there was a man, then his name is the Bishop Irenaeus and others like him, who was a fierce opponent of the Gnostics. He lived during the second century and describes them as flourishing throughout the Roman Empire. So they took hold in the third century and they were flourishing by the second century. Paul and John had already experienced them also in the first century. Paul's letter to the Colossians, for example, addresses Gnostic beliefs. And so to come against it, he focuses the letter on the supremacy of Christ. John 2, his epistles addressed Antichrist spirits. So what were the Gnostics teaching to have Paul and John write the way they did? Well, Gnosticism's roots were solidly embedded in what's Greek philosophy, in particular, the dualistic idealism of Plato, which I'll explain deeper in a minute. But the thoughts behind it was that the mind, the spiritual realm of the gods, and the intellect was considered good, beautiful, and true. But the material physical world was evil, ugly, and without positive value. So your soul, thoughts, your spirit were placed on a high value, but something like your body was not valued at all. I like to think of the rungs of a ladder, spiritual things on the top, physical things on the bottom. So with that mindset, the Gnostics taught that the flesh was sinful and bad. And because they viewed the flesh as sinful substance, they denied that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. The precise false teaching that John addressed in 1 John 4, verse 3, when he said, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. John was addressing this Doctrine that was coming in teaching that Jesus did not come in the flesh. The Gnostic teaching was painting a different picture of Jesus, a heretical picture. And people like Paul and Peter and John and others who came after them were fiercely coming against it. Which is perhaps why John exhorts the church to test the spirits. 
because there was something deeper going on, something that was impacting the way people think. And it was having a devastating effect on the church. Now, I closed out part one, sharing statistics on something called syncretism, which is a mixture of different religions, cultures, and schools of thought that form your beliefs. And I listed seven common beliefs today that people in America have embraced. There's biblical theism, Marxism, secular humanism, nihilism, dualism, moralistic therapeutic deism, and new age mysticism. The study said that as of February 2023, only 4% of adult Americans were living with a biblical worldview, meaning the remaining 95 to 96% are embracing this mixture of beliefs I just mentioned and embracing a new term, world citizenship, even if they call themselves a Christian. All of these belief systems have had an impact on the church over the years, but there is one in particular we are going to look at deeper today, and that is dualism. It's a concept we need to grasp clearly so that we are able to identify it when it's in operation in the church and even ourselves. Dualism has been around for thousands of years. It's a way of thinking that positions things into two opposing parts. It states that there are two fundamental principles to consider in life. Number one, the material or physical world, and number two, the spiritual world or the realm of the gods. And that may not seem like a big deal to you at the moment until you realize how deep that kind of thinking really goes. But before I get to that, let me give some context to all of this. If you open your Bible, you see a clear distinction between where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins. Usually, there might be a white sheet of paper or something in the middle to identify the partition. The Old Testament, therefore, ends with the prophet Malachi, and the New Testament begins with the Gospel of Matthew, right? Which means, by by 400 BC, the last word of the Old Testament was completed just before the Greeks arrived on the scene. And for the next 400 years, that space in your Bible between Malachi and Matthew, God was silent. God did not send a prophet and didn't speak. And no scripture was written during those 400 years except the historical Jewish books included in what we call the Apocrypha. But other than that, for 400 years, God wasn't speaking, but others were. Greek philosophers were walking on to the world stage during this time, giving us their words, which included new thoughts, new ideas, and new ideals. Almost immediately after Malachi, we have Socrates, followed by his pupil Plato, and later followed by Aristotle, the tutor of Alexander the Great. These three men in particular gave us a whole new set of ideas, philosophy, the way people think. They literally changed how people thought. Socrates is viewed by many as the founding figure of Western philosophy, even though he wrote nothing. He became best known as a questioner of everything and everyone, 
In fact, his style of teaching is immortalized as, a, as the Socratic method, right? And it wasn't about conveying knowledge, but rather asking question after clarifying question until his students arrived at their own understanding. And having wrote nothing himself, all that is known about him is filtered through the writings of a few contemporaries and followers, most notably his student, Plato. And when Socrates died, after being on trial for being an atheist and corrupting the young, his death sentence was by suicide, where he had to drink hemlock. He taught his students that death was not to be feared because it meant his soul, which was part of the spiritual realm, which was good, would be released from his physical body, which is part of the physical realm, which was bad. So he took the hemlock joyfully. Plato, on the other hand, wrote a lot. He is considered one of the most important figures of the ancient Greek world and the entire history of Western thought. In his written dialogues, he conveyed and expanded on the ideas and techniques of Socrates. And the academy he founded in Athens is considered by some to be the world's first university. And in it, he trained his greatest student, the equally influential philosopher, Aristotle. Aristotle, on the other hand, obviously enjoyed writing because he wrote 400 books. He made significant and lasting contributions to nearly every aspect of human knowledge, from logic to biology to ethics and aesthetics. He was so impressive that he was summoned by King Philip II to tutor his son, the future Alexander the Great. So this is what was taking place during that 400-year period of silence between Malachi and Matthew. Greek philosophy was being introduced to the ancient world and spreading like wildfire, creating an opportunity for Satan to make a move. Excuse me. You see, what Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle were teaching was a scale of values as it pertained to thinking, creating higher and lower planes of thinking. Think of that ladder I mentioned. The top rung of the ladder are the spiritual things. The bottom rung of the ladder are the physical things. And whether we realize it or not, we use that scale still. It's a scale of valuing things that is based in dualistic thinking. Thinking that splits the physical realm and the the spiritual realm, making them two opposing forces, which the Bible never does. Let me give you a couple of examples before we go any further. Number one, take work, for instance. In your Bible, there is no such thing as sacred and secular jobs if you're a child of God, right? There are immoral jobs and illegal jobs, but we have separated careers out as sacred and secular. I'm in a secular job. She's in ministry. It's a concept of dualism that was being taught by Greek philosophers. Biblical thinking doesn't teach that. It teaches us that faith is integrated into every sphere of life, family, work, recreation, and church. We are to be the same person in private as we are in public. God isn't looking at your title or even your connections. He's looking at your faithfulness like he was with the early church. 
Do you have a willing heart to serve him in the sphere of influence where he placed you? Perhaps this is why Paul, when writing to the Colossians, reminded them in uh, chapter 3, verse 23. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Whatever you do. It's a subtle reminder to not separate your work or lifestyle into something secular or sacred, which most likely the Gnostics were teaching. Let's take one more example, and this one's a bit more complicated. It's the separation of the body and soul. When we think in a dualistic way, the way of Greek philosophers, all sorts of things can follow. We can even divide a person up between body and soul, which is what the Greeks did and the church adopted. Greek philosophy taught that the soul of a person was good, but the body of a person was bad, corrupt, and evil. People think body-soul division is a Christian thing, but it was actually brought in by church fathers who adopted Greek philosophy. God does not separate things like that. He is always concerned with the wholeness of a person. That's what the word, the Hebrew word, shalom means. It means, we may think it just means peace, but it means peace, wholeness, soundness, that's your mind, right? Safety, that's your personhood, well-being, the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. Jesus, after all, is called the Prince of Peace, right? He's the Prince of Shalom. It's a Greek idea that I have a soul that was placed into a clay body that they are two separate things. My soul, being good according to the Greeks, is now always striving to seek what is higher, some kind of higher union with God, so to speak, because my body that my soul is trapped in is bad. Can you get a a bit of a picture of their thought process? Did you ever wonder why people practice flagellation? That's when they would beat the human body with whips and rods and switches, right, to rid themselves of sin. The practice of flagellation within the bounds of the Catholic Church, for example, was considered an accepted form of penance because by this point, Greek philosophy had even permeated the Catholic Church. But it was never something the Bible taught. Genesis clearly states that God was made, that God made man from the dust and breathed into him life. He became a living being, a living soul. A living soul in Hebrew thinking is a breathing body. So in Hebrew thinking, that means even animals are living souls. They have a breathing body. It's not something better from the body. It's what makes the body live. That's why when your body is in danger, if you're like stranded on a deserted island, right? And you write SOS in the sand, save our souls. You don't want a boat to come by and and take your soul because it's good and pleasant and wonderful and leave your body, which is wretched and evil on the beach, do you? They want the whole person saved. That's what SOS is. Save my whole person. Keep me alive. For the Greeks, prominence was placed on the soul. But especially the soul connecting to a spiritual dimension, whether of consciousness or possibly possibly some other eternal attribute, which is where mysticism had come in. You can now understand a bit 
why temple priests of the Greco-Roman world would work themselves into frenzied states during worship, and why they would sacrifice their children so easily for spiritual reasons, or cut themselves to attain spiritual ecstasies, or even at times castrate themselves in this state because the body was not important. The soul was. We can also better understand why God was angry with his people in the Old Testament when they adopted similar pagan ways when they began to worship the Canaanite god Baal and his wife Ashtoreth, or why the priests on Mount Carmel cut themselves when they were trying to call down fire for their false god when they were facing off against Elijah, or why the people of Israel when they became deceived and began to sacrifice their own children to the god Moloch. The demonic pagan thinking was there all along. Only now it's repackaged in philosophy, something that would come across more as enlightenment than deception. By the time Jesus came, philosophy had been established for a few hundred years. And when he came, he didn't think nor live the way of the Hellenized culture. First, he came in a physical body, something Greek dualistic philosophical thinking was teaching is bad and evil and corrupt. But then he proclaimed to be God at the same time, something those same principles claim to be good. Talk about turning Greek philosophy and dualism on its head. Second, he came with a message completely contrary to the worldview of the day. Your mind, how you thought something that was highly valued and those same principles that claimed to be good, could your thinking could affect your body. Jesus was teaching things like, if you're angry, it's like murder. If you think lustfully, you're committing adultery, right? Like the Jewish scripture says in Proverbs 23, what a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So scriptures were going to be scriptures were going to be completely contrasting this new thinking that was going on. But then Jesus went and did something nobody even expected. He went about healing people, spirit, soul, and their bodies. Regeneration of their spirit when they believed in him. He was casting out demons, raising dead people back to life, healing the sick, showing that he cared about the whole person. Shalom. And he began changing their thinking into kingdom thinking, his kingdom, which was neither Greek nor Roman. Think of the demoniac. Once his body was delivered of demons, his mind could think straight and he could be redeemed. When the people of his area came to see what happened, they saw that same man who had been possessed clothed and now in his right mind. And it says they were frightened. It was more than just seeing this man being delivered of demons. But now his spirit, soul, and body were in perfect harmony with God. There was no dualistic approach to Jesus. And what about when Jesus died? Well, then he really delivered a blow to that thinking, didn't he? His physical body that a Hellenized culture would think is bad is beaten and flogged, and then he's nailed to a cross and dies. 
But then he comes back three days later with a new body and a soul intact, a living being, a living person again, and walks and walks all over the place, showing himself to many, proving that there's another way of thinking and that the way they're currently thinking is a lie. It's no wonder Jesus says at the end of Mark, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Regeneration, right? Cast out demons, lay hands on the sick. That's the physical and mental healing of a person. He wants us and anybody who follows him to continue his ministry because these principles are still all around us. The teaching of these three men, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, these fathers of philosophy, it spread right through Europe and Western civilization so much so, we are still studying their philosophies today, giving no thought to how dualistic thinking coming in through Greek philosophy is shaping us through our education system. And that includes, I'm afraid, our seminaries. Look no further than how the church views Israel, physical Israel, in light of prophetic scriptures. Israel has been separated the same way that dualistic thinking separated everything else into physical and spiritual categories. And it not only changed today how we view Israel as the church, but even how we interpret the prophetic scriptures as a result. Let me explain this. This will take just a few minutes, but I have, I have to touch upon this topic and I have to give you some history in order to bring in the understanding. So if you need to fill up your cup of coffee, why don't you put pause and go fill up your coffee? Remember when Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem would be destroyed, leaving no stone left standing? Well, that came true. In AD 70, around 30 to 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, depending on the exact year you believe he died, Roman general Titus, before he was emperor Titus, stormed Jerusalem, just as predicted, causing the death of millions, destroying the temple, something we know from the historian Josephus, who lost both his parents and his first wife in the event. So the temple's destroyed, just as Jesus predicted. But not only that, it resulted in the enslavement of tens of thousands of Jewish people, many of whom were sent to Rome and used to help build the Roman Colosseum, and the remaining slaves were dispersed into other nations. The Roman Colosseum, by the way, I'm not sure if you know this, it was actually built with the wealth they obtained when they looted the Jewish temple before destroying it. Many Jewish followers of Jesus, by this time, they saw the trouble coming, and they had fled to other places before enslavement, escaping to areas like Asia Minor, for example, where the churches of Revelation are located. Little did they know then, though, that they would never be able to return home because another revolt happened around 130 A.D., where the, any remaining Jews that were there were either persecuted, killed, or again sold into slavery. And so after this revolt, the Bar Kokhba revolt, the final banishment of all Jews from the land of Israel took place. And so for the next 2,000 years, the land of Israel fell into the control of the Gentile world. 
you had the Greek influence early, but then you had Roman rule from 63 BC until 313 AD. Then you had Byzantine rule from 313 to 636. Then you had Islamic rule, which uh, Islam didn't start until the early 7th century, but you have Islamic rule from 636 to 1099. Then you have Crusader rule from 1099 to 1291, Mamluk rule from 1291 to 1517, Ottoman rule from 1517 to 1917, and then British rule from 1917 to 1948. All these empires trampled through the Holy Land of Israel for 2,000 years. But then what happened? Why did British rule end in 1948? The Balfour Declaration. It was a public statement issued by the British government in 1917 during World War I, announcing its support for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in a land now called Palestine, which was then an Ottoman region with a small minority Jewish population. The Jewish people were nearly wiped out in the Holocaust by this point, and the world was trying to figure out what to do with the remnant that was left. Where do you put them? Well, in 1947, the United Nations voted to divide the land called Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. And if you know your Bible history, then you know that this is clearly not the boundaries that God gave to Abraham and his descendants, but it was a start. Because in biblical prophecy, there is clear language about the restoration of not only physical Israel, the land of Israel, but also the return of God's physical people to that land. The Jews accepted the United Nations partition, and when Harry S. Truman took office, he made it clear that his sympathies were with the Jewish people, and he accepted the Balfour Declaration. But at the time, no Arab or any other Muslim country accepted it. When British rule ended on May 15, 1948, Israel was reborn, and God's prophetic clock began to tick. However, it's been met with much resistance. With the ink barely dry, so to speak, the armies of all the neighboring Arab states, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, and Egypt, attacked the one-day-old state of Israel in order to destroy it. It's the Israel War of Independence. But to the world's surprise, the little Jewish state survived. Coming out of the shadows of the Holocaust, using limited resources and weapons to defend themselves, their victory can only be explained as God's sovereign hand over the Jewish state. And then it happened again in 1967, what is known as the Six-Day War, where Israel reclaimed Jerusalem. The dictator of Egypt announced his plan and his words to destroy Israel. He placed Egyptian troops on Israel's border and armies of surrounding Arab countries were also mobilized to attack. However, Israel preemptively attacked Egypt and Syria. Israel did not attack Jordan and begged Jordan's king not to join the war. But he did. And only because of that did Israel take control of Jordanian land, specifically the West Bank and all of Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount. Today, however, when the dust settled, 
The prime minister at the time returned the authority of the Temple Mount to the Islamic Trust, giving them religious control over the Temple Mount, which is how it is still today, while Israeli forces control external security. They have governmental control. That's why when there is any sort of unrest on the Temple Mount today, you'll see Israeli forces at work, not Muslim. That's also why when you go to Israel today, you see Israeli forces patrolling that area. That's also why if you visit the Temple Mount in Israel today, there are special religious rules you have to follow before stepping foot onto that compound. But between the land in 1948 and then as prophecy predicted, Jerusalem in 1967, prophetic prophecies were literally being fulfilled before our very eyes in a physical way. The literal moment the Jewish people stepped foot into the land, there's been a tug of war going on, and it will continue to do so until Jesus returns. Because it was a physical land given by God, who is a spiritual being. And he gave it to Abraham, a physical person, and to his descendants, physical people, the Jews. But now Gentiles are part of that because we are grafted in spiritually through Christ. That's in Romans 11. And it also is stated in Galatians 3 that we are part of the children of Abraham. But the bottom line, Abraham and God have a covenant and we're part of it. And Jerusalem, scripture tells us, Jerusalem is going to be a cup of trembling to all the people around them, a cup of drunkenness, a burdensome, a burdensome stone, Zechariah 12 says. It is the physical holy city of God, but it is also going to be the future physical holy city of God. Not in a spiritual sense. You see, when Israel came back into the land in 1948, I'm getting to the dualistic part here, so hang tight, I'm almost done. Most people within the church had written them off. A people who were not in their land for 2,000 years returned? And not just return, but they re returned and restored their heritage, their language, their religion, their culture, their food, their feasts. This had never, ever, ever happened to any other country Ever. Somehow, being scattered abroad and absorbed into cultures, the Jewish people maintained their Jewish identity. Almost wiped out as a people by the Holocaust, of all things, now found themselves being restored to their land. It is a literal fulfillment of biblical prophecy, largely overlooked in the Western church. Why? Because it's not overlooked in other parts of the world. They see it plainly. Well, for 2,000 years, biblical prophecy could not be reconciled concerning Israel or God's people. How do you read the scriptures about a physical land and a physical people and promise blessings to them for the future when they aren't even there? After 70 AD and later their Bar Kokhba revolt, there was no longer a temple or a Jewish people who could lay claim to the promised land, except one, the church. New thinking coming in through Greek philosophy and dualism, separating spiritual from physical, created a new kind of thinking as pertained to the people of God, who are now, quote, the church, Christians in the land of Israel. 
And so a distinction was made. The church replaced Israel and is now spiritual Israel. And the ones who will receive the blessings spoken of by God in the prophetic scriptures. How else could these scriptures be justified otherwise? So if you've ever wondered about this, I'm sure you hear about it in your, in your churches. Maybe not. There's several approaches people take, and I'm going to go through these and we move on. One group of Bible interpreters say that all of the promises in the prophetic scriptures were conditional on Israel being faithful and obedient to God. And so since they weren't, all of these predictions have been canceled. They will never happen because of their unfaithfulness. However, if Israel had been faithful, if they would have cooperated, then these promises would have been fulfilled. In particular, since the Jews did not accept Jesus as their Messiah, they believe the Jews have now forfeited their entire future. That's one reason why some preachers never talk about Israel or its future. The second approach is that the promises were unconditional. It's not a case of if they will happen, but that they will happen. God has said, this is what I intend to do and I will do it. But within this group, there are two totally different ways of saying how that will happen. One of the main ways is what I was saying a moment ago. Churches believe the prophetic scriptures are to be fulfilled and that that is already happening, only it's happening to the church. It's being fulfilled in a symbolic or spiritual way. And this is the view called replacement theology. That the church has replaced Israel and therefore all the predictions made to Israel are now to be fulfilled in the church and are being fulfilled in the present, but in a spiritual way, not in a physical or literal way. The church is now considered the new Israel. Do you see the dualism? In addition, they teach, rather than being brought to an earthly, physical new Jerusalem one day, we will be brought to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's spiritual, physical again. This thinking profoundly impacts how people interpret Revelation, for example. And all the promises of God spoken in the scriptures, the predictions of blessings, are believed to now be passed on to the church. But interestingly enough, all the predictions of curses are quietly discarded. So this is the majority view in most churches today, that the church has replaced Israel, that he's finished with them. And so now we have to evangelize Israel like we have to evangelize any other nation. Only we don't because most Christians are too intimidated to evangelize a Jewish person. Honestly, I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, I, I, don't, I don't know very many Christians who go out and try to evangelize Jewish people. And so we're taught that the Jews don't have any future as a people, except when, they, when we're taught that God deals with them in Revelation, right? Or if a Jew gets converted, then we'll have a future with us. That's the other thinking. And the third and last view, and the view I've taken, is that those predictions were unconditional. They will happen. But they will happen literally physically to Israel, as God said they would. Therefore, most of them are still future. Something to think about. The name Israel occurs 74 times in the New Testament. Not once is it clearly 
applied to the church, clearly. In 73 of those, it is clearly applied to the Jewish people, though. There is only one verse where it could be a little ambiguous, but that's not enough to apply Israel to the church. God gave Abraham a covenant and promised him two physical things, physical descendants, which is a people, and second, land, a place for those people to live. And God has never revoked those promises. In fact, he says in the New Testament that those gifts are irrevocable. They're still physical. The land is still a physical place and still belongs to the Jewish people. The Jews are still a physical people. And they are still the brothers of Jesus. Don't forget that. And they are still beloved by God for the patriarch's sake. Don't forget that either. The physical manifestation of these prophecies toward Israel and the Jewish people are taking place, being fulfilled before our very eyes, and many are missing it because of this bad theology. Many Jews are also still not saved, so we have to pray for them. They don't believe in their Messiah yet, but but many do. But for the ones that aren't, they're still beloved. They're still his chosen people, and there's still time for them to recognize their Messiah. So these are the three positions, and you are going to have to work your way through the Bible and come to your own conviction about these. But one of the most decisive factors for me comes from visiting the land itself, and you visibly see the evidence of this prophetic fulfillment of Scripture in many ways. But also from the book of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, which is rarely taught on, which focuses on Israel's past, present, and future. Romans 11 focuses on their future and his subsequent warning to the church not to be haughty in thinking they've replaced them in his plan of redemption. Many Christian thinkers, I'm continuing now, some of the fathers of our faith from the early days of Christianity borrowed heavily from Greek philosophical thought, shaping their approach to Christianity, which as you can see from what I just explained, has shaped ours. Instead of living under the word, they often read scripture and interpreted scripture with Greek eyes. But how and when did all this start? There's a book in the Apocrypha. It's the book of the Maccabees. It was a book that was written during those 400 years of silence, right? When Greek philosophy was taken root. And it tells the story of when King Syrian King Antiochus Epiphanes charged from Syria to invade Israel and capture the capital of Jerusalem. He was sold on Greek culture and wanted to impose it on every land he conquered. And so he imposed it on Jerusalem and on the Jewish people. For example, he forbid the people to honor the Sabbath. He restricted the Torah. He brought in sport, which was done in the nude. He took over the holy temple and erected a statue of Zeus in it and even sacrificed pigs an unclean animal to the Jews, on the altar. He brought in temple prostitutes, filled the vestibule with profane priests, and for three and a half years, Jewish people were raped in every sense of the word. And this is when the Hellenization of Jews began, mostly by threat of death. They adopted Greek language and adopted the Greek culture. And it was here in this story that the Greek and Hebrew worlds collided. 
So now Jews were being scattered around the known world, and Jewish students and later Jewish scholars were coming to a university in Alexandria, Egypt, second in promises to Plato's in Athens. And it became a melting pot of Jewish thinking and Greek thinking. It was here that Jewish scholars decided to translate their scriptures into Greek so that the Greek world could hear the truth about the God of Israel. And so 70 scholars faithfully translated the Old Testament into the Greek language, what's now known as the Septuagint. But the influence also went the other way. A new way of studying scriptures was introduced to the Jewish people, what's called an allegorical method. And it's coming from the Greek philosophical thinking. It's a method of assigning hidden meanings to passages of scripture limited only by individual imagination, in order to bring in deeper truths. So they no longer read the scriptures from this place of simplicity, but began to look for these deeper truths. The allegorical method of reading the Bible assumes that the Bible has various levels of meaning, and that's different from, you know, when we're reading the Bible and the Holy Spirit's showing us something. So this type of teaching, though, tends to focus on this spiritual sense of Scripture, almost like a mystical sense of Scripture, as opposed to the literal sense. One example where we see this today is through something, I'm sure you've heard of it, called Bible codes. The Bible in this approach is coded. It's full of secret messages, spiritual things. True or not, rather than reading Scripture in its simplicity, It's now a way to look for something deeper. Now, there are some parts of scripture that are allegorical, clearly, but most scripture you'll find, it's in plain, straightforward statements, which need to be taken at face value. Because the danger is, if you're always looking for something hidden, figurative, or some symbolic meaning, there's no boundaries. There's no control what you'll find. Someone will say, well, I think it means this. And you'll say, well, I think it means this, which is what's called an eisegesis approach. It's interpreting the text by reading into it your own ideas and your own bias. Rather than what's called an exegesis approach, which is looking at context and careful analysis of the text. Before long, the term Platonism took hold. And any philosophy that derived from Plato was considered good. A Hellenized Jew named Philo embraced the allegorical method. He was deeply influenced by Greek culture and became a student of Hellenic philosophy, but especially Plato. And like Plato, he believed that a life of contemplation was superior. Deeper truths, deeper thinking. Remember, they valued the mind almost as much as they valued the spiritual world. Philo himself was something of a mystic, and mysticism had already crept into Greek philosophy. He believed in a he believed that a, a, a transcendent God could be known by intuition. He believed the purpose of existence, therefore, was to strive to know God, that a supreme being had implanted in humans an innate love of him, allowing humans to achieve a personal union with the divine a mystical union with the divine. So Philo believed that reason and religion were not incompatible. In some of Philo's works, he used the concept of logos 
or reason in a new way. Logos to Philo is the mediator between the human mind and the divine. One thing he taught was that intermediary beings were necessary to bridge this enormous gap between God who's spiritual and the material world that's physical. And so he believed in what's called a demiurge, a figure responsible for fashioning and maintaining the physical universe. Not God, but a go-between. And he called it Logos. He adopted this dualistic thinking that valued the spiritual over the physical. And this is what the Gnostics picked up on. And so this is what was going on in Alexandria, which would ultimately be passed on to Christian students and scholars who would come there, and it would eventually impact the church. When Christ came, it was inevitable that as the Christian faith spread, there was going to be a head-on encounter with Greek thinking Because of this kind of thinking, this philosophy, this dualism that compartmentalizes physical and spiritual, one being higher than the other, what does this do with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? Where do you put Jesus into your thinking? You can now see how Gnosticism came in. By the end of the first century and into the second, this thinking had made its way into the church. In Ephesus, for example, one of the biggest cities in Asia Minor at the time, people were beginning to force Jesus into a Greek framework, putting him somewhere like Philo did, like a Greek demiurge, this go-between between God and creation. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses do, too. The Gnostics believed in this demiurge, this go-between for the physical and spiritual world, which is why their doctrine was so dangerous for the church They were also avid proponents of progressive revelation, those deeper things, another dangerous doctrine that took hold in the church. It was the belief that God is continuing to reveal his will to mankind, but with the implication that the Holy Scripture is not as important as hearing directly from the spirit world yourself, hearing from God yourself. And so it brought in the mysticism. This was the type of thinking Philo embraced and was teaching others. And this was what Paul, John, Polycarp, Irenaeus, Tertullian, and others were fiercely taking a stand against. They were strong leaders for this early church, which was clearly finding itself under assault from great deception. And I'm afraid that's where we are today, too just by those statistics I gave you. My goodness, we are in desperate need for strong leaders like that in the church right now to protect the flock from the deception that's all around us. Which makes me think right now, it might be a good time to mention something in relation to all of this mystical approach to hearing directly from God. And that's not the same thing as being directed by the Holy Spirit This is something different than that. This is this mystical approach that is cloaked in some biblical undertones, but it's not biblical. In fact, it's dangerous if we're not careful because it's a mixture of Eastern mysticism, Greek philosophy, dualism, and Christian teachings. And right now, there's a popular movement in the church called Christian mysticism. That word mysticism comes from the Greek word mystes, which means initiate an initiate into a mystery. 
referring to an initiate of a secret cult or mystery religion at the time. Mysticism itself is defined as this, the practice of religious ecstasies together with whatever ideologies, ethics, rites, myths, legends, and magic may be related to them. And religious ecstasies, those are religious experiences during altered states of consciousness. Most mystics are in pursuit of a personal communion or special union with God, whichever God they consider that to be. And so a person who successfully pursues and gains such communion earns the title of a mystic. You don't need to go to Thailand or Tibet to find any of this. It's all around you. It's found today in universalism, transcendentalism, theosophy, Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age, and unfortunately now, Christ Church. And this is just me speaking here. It is so hard for me to believe how many Christians are embracing this. But the reality is they are in the Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant churches. I believe there's a genuine goal of trying to find this union with God. And so to do that, there are practices incorporated like solitude and contemplation and self-denial and often silence, all aimed at emptying of the self in order we might be filled with God. I get it. Sounds innocent enough. I mean, who wouldn't want it, right? We all are trying to draw closer to God in some way, shape, or form. Some of those practices even help. But so many Christians, because of how good that looks, don't see anything wrong with the rest of it. Because they do feel like it draws them closer to God and to their community. And sometimes that is true. However, we must use great discernment, friends. Because not all that glitters is gold. You won't hear words typically spoken in Christian circles about mysticism as you would in normal mystical circles like transcendence or initiate or spiritual ecstasies or states of consciousness, right? Rather, it's packaged quite nicely, actually, with modern language, giving it a sacred feel with words like contemplation, encounter, spiritual, mystery, graces, that's a big one, embodiment, conscious awareness, felt experiences. I could go on. When yet, <laughs> scripture's so simple. It says, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. You are already one with Christ because that word joined is like cement. You can't be separated if you're joined with him. So if you're joined with him already, what are you really looking for? What are you hoping to attain? I fear that the risk, the danger and deception in this movement, if people aren't careful, it becomes about an experience and less about relationship. It can quickly become about works over abiding. It, be, it can quickly become about uh, less about the scriptures and more about this experience that you're trying to attain. It moves beyond the simplicity of Christ, even moving beyond the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit, almost replacing him in a way in the pursuit 
of these deeper things, these deeper truths, and this, quote, union with God. One gal said it to me like this. It's about the deeper things. I know exactly where that's coming from. And that is something Jezebel was teaching the church in Thyatira too, in the letters of Jesus. Friends, you don't need to go searching for this deeper, mystical, whatever. It's within you. John makes this point very clear in 1 John chapter 2, 26 to 27, when he's talking about the anointing of Christ within you. Christ and Christos. Christ and Messiah are the same word. Christ is Christos in the Greek. Messiah is Mashiach in the Hebrew. They both mean anointed one. You have the anointed one, Christ, within you. John says, I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing, Christ the anointed one, which you have received from him, okay, you've received the anointing from Christ, you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, like all these doctrines that were coming into the church, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. In other words, the anointing of Christ, the anointed one, is already flowing and working in and through you. What more are you looking for? Whether it's embracing the desert fathers or the spiritual sayings of monks and mystics within the early church, written centuries ago, I might add, male and female both, or books even available today, written by people, if you research them deep enough, they were practicing mystics three decades ago and now today identify as spiritual leaders or spiritual directors within the church. We need to exercise great caution. Yes, some of their words are beautiful and, and they can speak to us, but we must exercise great caution. The Holy Spirit speaks to us all, my friends. He is the spirit of truth, too. In John 16, it says that it is the Holy Spirit who will guide you into all truth. So if you're not sure what's true or not, ask the Holy Spirit of truth to show you truth, and he will. Because it says he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he speaks, he will, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So if you want to know something, just ask him. You don't need to go in some altered state of consciousness to hear God speak. You don't need to be in a constant state of contemplation either to hear him speak or to be in or, or even have a constant state of contemplation to be in union with him. If you have been a truly born again person again by the spirit of God. If you have been born again by the spirit of God, you are joined with Jesus, the anointed one, and you are now one spirit with him. Christian mysticism, I fear, is going to be one of the great deceptions of our day if we're not careful, because it's already in our pulpits. It's in books. It's in retreats, Bible studies, TED Talks, you name it. It's everywhere. I was listening to one spiritual director from a denomination I will not mention, who said this, exact words, until someone has had some level of mystical in, inner spiritual experience, there is no point 
and asking them to follow in any life-changing way the ethical ideals of Jesus or the mystery of Christian doctrines like the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, salvation, or incarnation. We simply don't have the power to really understand or follow any of Jesus' ideals such as loving others, forgiving enemies, nonviolence, or the humble use of power, except in and through a mystical union with God. He goes on to say that, quote, mysticism teaches us how to find God, and a mystic is someone who has been recognized as doing this particularly well, end quote. And this is someone who is teaching within the church. I'm about to throw up. That thinking literally makes my stomach churn. I recoil at that because it's not true. What does the scripture say? If you want wisdom, you ask him for wisdom and he will give it what? Liberally to you. And if you pray for something, pray in faith. Don't doubt so that it will be done for you. Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. 1 Timothy 6, 20-21 John wrote his gospel at the end of the first century, 85-90 to AD, while living in Ephesus of all places, right before he was exiled to Patmos, well aware of the heresies coming in at the church, in fact, going all the way to Rome at one point to address them, saying in his first epistle, even now, many antichrists have come, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they weren't, but they went, that they might be made manifest that none of them were with us. In other words, the people causing so much disturbance within the church during John's day came from within the church. And their leaving was going to prove that they were never true Christians to begin with which is why he opens his gospel the way he does, identifying Jesus as the word, the logos. He's essentially telling the ancient world, this logos, he's the reason, Jesus. He's the true logos. He's not a demiurge. He's not even a go-between. He's God. The logos was in the beginning with God, and the logos was God. There is no intermediary mumbo-jumbo talk here that Philo speaks of. John took the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and drove it right into the lie. Notice also how his gospel and his epistles, they always bring special attention to the divinity of Christ for this very reason. In the second and third centuries, Alexandria was the melting pot of three distinct cultural streams. This Jewish Alexandrian philosophy, Platonism, and Gnosticism. And from this university came Christian scholars. There were two in particular, Clement in Oregon, Clement of Alexandria, not to be confused with Clement of Rome. Clement in Oregon relied extensively upon the knowledge that was preserved in the Library of Alexandria in order to read the Bible allegorically. In other words, They relied on the knowledge of this library that contained all of the written works of all of the Greek philosophers in order to read their Bible. 
And how do you read a Bible allegorically? In case you're wondering. Do you remember the story? I think it's in John 21 where it's after the resurrection and the disciples are fishing and they toiled all night and they caught nothing, but they see a man on the seashore. They don't recognize that it's Jesus at first, but it's Jesus. And he calls out to them and he says, cast your net on the other side. And when they did, they brought in this large number of fish. So then Jesus asked Peter to bring him some fish. So Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore, and it was full of all these large fish. And then it says 153 of them. Now, the allegorical method of interpreting this passage is going to try to turn these 150 fish, 53 fish into something spiritual or something symbolic. I can't tell you how many interpretations I've heard of this verse and even believed sometimes it was that convincing. There have been dozens of allegorical interpretations of what 153 means here. Maybe it's just a lot of fish. Maybe they counted them in order to see how much money it would yield. I don't know. But this is just one of countless examples. And we are trying to find the deeper thing. Ezekiel's another one. You know, you walk into the water, it's ankle deep, then knee deep, then waist deep, right? All of the allegorical interpretations, even to that verse. And maybe there are deeper things to know there. We don't know. Scripture is not clear enough. And so we need to be careful. But Clement and Oregon, they called themselves Christians, only they called themselves Platonist Christians. Clement considered Christianity as the highest form of philosophy. So he was widely read in history, philosophy, and poetry, both pagan and Jewish. And so allegorical reading of biblical texts helped him to connect all those forms of human wisdom to the divine wisdom of Christ. And so for him, the Bible was a roadmap for that connection. And I'm afraid that's how it was for a lot of the Christian fathers. Oregon was one of the greatest biblical scholars of ancient Christianity, known for his attention to the text of the Bible, and also his work, Christian Neoplatonism. See how they've combined it all. He deepened his secular philosophy to help him elaborate his theology. And that's what a lot of them did. He was eventually removed from teaching and the priesthood for heretical ideas. But you can see now that the simplicity of the scriptures, the simplicity of Christ, was being corrupted all throughout the Roman Empire. And then you move to Tunisia, to to Hippo, the young man sent there to be bishop, Augustine, brought up in Italy, given a classical education in Neoplatonism. But like most products of that culture, his body and soul went different ways, and this is I'm getting to a point here. I'm not trying to criticize him. His soul studied philosophy and his body became promiscuous. He had a mistress and an illegitimate son whom he later abandoned. But keep in mind, they didn't believe what you did with your body affected your soul. So his living was quite different than how many of us know him now. But that was his life. He even joined a sect called the Manichaeans, which were Gnostic dualists. Now with this background, he became convicted of sin. He had contact with a saintly bishop called Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan. And if you've read the Confessions of Augustine, you know that he was converted quite dramatically and sat under the ministry of this bishop and then chosen to become Bishop of Hippo. So he went there. Well, after his conversion to Christianity and his baptism in 387, Augustine developed his own approach to philosophy and theology. 
accommodating a variety of methods and different perspectives. At first, he preached a simple gospel, but he was greatly influenced by Stoicism, Platonism, and Neoplatonism. Neoplatonists interpreted Plato as a thinker who understood the eternal truth. That's why you'll see the Neoplatonism a lot. He understood the eternal truth in their eyes, which to them was consistent with later Christian ideology. Being greatly influenced by the Greek philosophers, Augustine brought these philosophical ideas into the Roman church, and these concepts became dominant. His writings inform every area of discussion in Christian philosophy, systematic theology, philosophy of history, polemics, rhetoric, and devotion. He's highly esteemed in all streams of Christianity, Catholic and Protestant both, as it's said of him, quote, after the apostles, he was the teacher of the entire church, end quote. But even with all of his contributions, we cannot leave out the fact that he too found Platonism attractive. He was called the single most, he is called actually, the single most influential voice in the Christian Platonist tradition. He deemed Greek philosophy and faith compatible because they both seek truth. So he modified Platonism to accommodate Christian doctrine, attempting to synthesize Greek thought with Christianity, arguing that Christianity came to complete Greek philosophy not destroy it. And his influence in the Roman church is vast. For example, he framed the concepts of original sin and a just war and believed the grace of God was indispensable to us as he was forgiven of so much. And his written work, The City of God, was one of the most influential books of the Middle Ages and very eye-opening. When the Western Roman Empire was starting to disintegrate, Augustine developed the concept of the Catholic Church as the spiritual city of God in a book of the same name, which would be distinct from the material earthly city. You see the dualistic thinking. And his thoughts profoundly influenced the the medieval world. And although he appears to put a sword to the pagan hedonistic society of Rome, his dualistic neoplatonic perspective is obvious. I'm not trying to speak unfairly about him, but factually. Educated in the classical Greek tradition, but living amongst the emerging Christendom, Augustine inhabited two worlds. And consequently, His writings demonstrate an effort to combine the ideas of these two worlds. And so by mixing faith and philosophy, specifically Platonism, Augustine produced a sophisticated interpretation of Christianity. And he influenced the work of people like Thomas Aquinas. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. The origin of John Calvin's theology is with Augustine's theology known as Augustinian Calvinism. And so many Christian thinkers, St. Justin Martyr, Clement of Alexandria, St. Augustine, viewed Christian faith as more the completion of Greek philosophy. So there was nothing wrong with it. Either way, what you discover when studying church fathers, which I encourage you to do and try your best to find unbiased books and unbiased records, is recognize how Greek thinking played a huge part in their faith. 
And with the exception of a handful of other church fathers, the church has been pulling up its Hebraic roots ever since, replacing it with Greek ones. And the more Christianity came up under formality, then the more prevalent dualism became, separating sacred from secular, body from soul, mind from matter, natural from supernatural, eternal from temporal, even creature from creator, placing Satan on the same plane of spiritual power as God. To them, the spiritual world is good. The physical world is bad. And the simplicity of the Hebraic biblical mindset was being replaced by a Greek spiritual one instead, evidenced even in how many of us value tradition over scripture. How many of our churches practice James chapter 5, 14 to 15, that says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Not in many of the churches I attend. In fact, I don't know if any of them have ever done that. But yet we'll place ashes on our foreheads to commemorate the start of Lent, a symbolic spiritual experience over a biblical one. And I'm not saying that to be critical, but I'm trying to point out the thinking involved, how we've shifted from a biblical worldview into one that has been heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. Sweeping changes came to the church. Creeds were written to bring clarity, but they also put in many boundaries. Things pertaining to clergy, women, even not receiving unleavened bread from Jewish people. That was forbidden. The day of worship even changed to Sunday, calling Sunday the Lord's Day, a day named after the sun god. And the Sabbath on day seven was now forbidden. They even forbid the celebration of Passover and instituted Easter instead, a name taken from a pagan goddess, the goddess of fertility. So now we have bunnies and eggs, right? They're fertility, they're fertility things. And we replaced a Passover lamb with an Easter ham, and we've all done it. New traditions, traditions of men, started to take hold within the church and literally changed the Christian church to look almost unrecognizable from its early beginnings, even to the point that its doctrines, doctrines of men, can now supersede Scripture because they now consider themselves God's authority on the earth to do so. I don't know, folks. I don't know. This is a big ball of yarn that began to form, originating and continuing through new ideals brought in by Greek philosophy and the embracing of dualism. Those same deceiving spirits, my friends, those doctrines of demons that plagued the churches of the first and second and third centuries, they're still here. They never left. It's only been modernized in things like the Da Vinci Code or even movies like Star Wars, both of which have heavy dualism in it. And the same wisdom, discernment, boldness, and courage 
used by men like Paul and John and Polycarp, Ignatius and others to stand up to such doctrines is going to be needed by us today. We must stand up and speak truthfully, even if it costs us everything. As today we are living in a time where we are embracing the lies over the truth and the church is silent about it. Only 4% of adult Americans hold to a biblical worldview. And that bothers me. And we can look at that two ways. On a positive, the fields are white for the harvest, so there's time to undo the ball of yarn. But on the flip side, the negative side, the stage is set. Not only are we witnessing a falling away from biblical truth with the embracing of syncretism, but we are ripe for a one-world religion and government. Friends, God is after unity, and that includes internal unity like the body, soul, and spirit. And he's after this within his church. Greek philosophy, dualism, Gnosticism, and even mysticism separate, compartmentalize not only the Lord, but the whole order of his kingdom. Our God is not the God of the Greeks or Romans. He's not even like them in any way, nor the Egyptians' God, Egyptian gods. He's not distant, silent, or static. Our God is dynamic, my friends. He works with us. He shares with us. He speaks to us through his spirit and has prepared a place for us. He is the Hebrew God who hears our prayers. And Jesus is him. I and my father are one. Before Abraham was, I am. He dispenses mercy. He becomes our fortress and our eternal king, working in us that internal unity of all things. And to him, both physical and spiritual are important. The letters to the churches of Revelation were not just for the churches of the first century, friends. They are for us today as well. And the same thing is desired of us as Jesus wanted of them. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. We need to have faithfulness to finish our race well. Because then Jesus closes his letters by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, I still have ears, so I'm listening. Are you? God bless you today. Thank you.